is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Jennifer Lockhart, Andrew W. Mellon Fellow in the Humanities at Stanford University, and a recent graduate of the philosophy program here at the University of Chicago. And she is here to talk with us about ignorant knowledge. Jennifer Lockhart, welcome. Thank you for having me. So ignorant knowledge is a paradoxical sounding uh, term that you coined to express a certain kind of failure to do something. So maybe you can tell us a bit, you know, what do you mean by ignorant knowledge? Okay, so someone in a state of ignorant knowledge, there are three important things about him. The first is that he is living as if he were ignorant of some truth about how he ought to live. And so this is why he's called an ignorant knower. He's as if he were ignorant. There's something that he seems not to know. But then the second feature of the ignorant knower is that he purports to know this truth. So if you try to tell him what it is that he seems to be ignorant of, he says, oh yeah, I know. And he will agree with you, and he's, he's willing to repeat it, and he might even be quite enthusiastic about whatever it is that he seems to be ignorant of. And then the third feature of him is that he's unaware of this practical disconnect between what it is that he seems to be ignorant of, and he's not aware of the disconnect between his own behavior and what it is that he takes himself to know. And so that's why he's called an ignorant knower, because he's someone who seems on the one hand very much to know, but on the other hand goes on living as if he were ignorant. So you kind of want to tell him what it is that he seems not to know. Yeah, so it's something like, it's someone who professed to know everything they needed to know about how to be polite. You know, oh, in order to be polite, you need to make eye contact, and you need to listen to what the other person says very carefully and take them seriously. But then when you actually observe this person in practice and they're actually at a party talking to people, it becomes clear that they don't actually know how to implement any of these things that they should do in principle. Yeah, and I think it would become sort of a paradigm case of Kierkegaardian ignorant knowledge. I hadn't thought of this case, but if you imagine the person at the party kind of expounding how it is that one ought to be polite in a way that is quite rude without making eye contact and being kind of disruptive and loud and yeah, that would be a case of ignorant knowledge. And so as he goes around knowing and seeming to know all of these rules about what is polite and impolite, putting on display the fact that he doesn't seem to know how to be polite. And it's important that he's not aware of this disconnect. You could also imagine a case where the person is describing what's required to be polite and just takes himself to be quite a rude person anyway and doesn't care about it. Um, but so this, for it to be a case of ignorant knowledge, he's got to be unaware of this disconnect. Right, so it's not like a soccer coach who is really good at teaching people to play soccer but can't themselves play soccer. It's crucial to this idea of the ignorant knower that they be unaware, that they can't put their theoretical knowledge into practice. Exactly. What might be another example of an ignorant knower? So another example of an ignorant knower that I've tried to develop is by kind of drawing out a scenario that arises in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And so Aristotle is discussing someone who 
listens to talk about virtue, but doesn't put it into practice. And he says that this is like someone who's sick and who goes to the doctor and tries to find out what to do, but never actually does what the doctor prescribes for them. And so um, presumably he's telling his students this because he wants it to help them in some way to be the kind of person who doesn't just listen to idle talk about virtue, but who actually puts into practice what it is that they've heard about. And so the question is, or one question that occurs to me after reading Kierkegaard is, could a lecture like this actually help someone? And surely there are cases where it might be helpful for someone to be reminded of this simple fact that you you need to put into practice what it is that you hear. But it seems like there are also cases where the person has a particular type of problem where such a lecture would be totally useless. And so we can develop the example of someone listening to this lecture in a particular way. And so we could imagine a certain pupil of Aristotle, I call him Aristotle's pupil, who is an ignorant knower. And if he's an ignorant knower, then he's the kind of person who doesn't put into practice the talk that he hears about virtue. And then he is unaware of the fact that there is this disconnect between what it is that he does and his practice. And so when he hears Aristotle talking about the way that you need to practice what it is that you hear, this too becomes a new thing that he just knows and repeats. And so he may go home and talk about how important it is to put into practice what it is that you, the talk that you hear about virtue and not just to engage in idle chatter. And all the while, this is just another occasion for him to engage in idle chatter. And so this is supposed to be another case of ignorant knowledge. It seems like this has the potential to be a very serious problem because here I might be giving great speeches about what it takes to be virtuous and not being able to put any of it into practice. But then if somebody comes along to me and says, look, you can't just, you know, you're failing to put these virtues you're preaching um, into practice, start doing that. Well, then there's a danger that I might say, okay, sure. But then that'll just be yet another maxim that I fail to implement, you know. Oh, yes, you know, I have to put things into practice. But then I might, in turn, fail to put that into practice. And there's sort of this infinite regress that's looming over the situation. Suppose that I'm an ignorant knower and that I don't know how to um, practice what I preach. What should I do? The first thing to say, I think, is that you're right, that it would be very difficult to get out of the situation. And it would be very difficult to communicate with someone who is in the situation. And so without saying what would be successful, I want to bring in Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher. And one thing that I argue in my dissertation is that this problem of how it is that you could help someone who's in this state is really the sort of motivating force behind Kierkegaard's, in particular, his pseudonymous authorship. So he has a lot of what Kierkegaard writes is not written under his own name, but it's written by a cast of characters who they have their own voices and they have their own lives and they communicate with each other and write letters to each other, are involved in certain dramas and things. And and the question arises, why did Kierkegaard go to such great lengths to create these characters that have a kind of seemingly literary quality to it? Why didn't he just write a treatise? And my answer is that he was motivated by this very problem, the problem of ignorant knowledge. And that's the problem of how to communicate with someone who seems to know already what it is that you want to tell him, but to know it in such a way that it's virtually useless to him. When Kierkegaard talks about this method and why he does what he does, his way of talking about it is often to say that he's involved in indirect rather than direct communication. 
And so his answer is that what needs to happen in this case is that the person needs to be communicated with indirectly. I mean, I guess Kierkegaard is approaching it from the point of view of what should you do if you encounter someone who has this problem? And then the idea would be you have to resort to indirect rather than direct communication. But the question of what should I do, I guess if you put it that way, I mean, one thing to say is that it would be very difficult to become aware about yourself that you have this problem. And part of that is conceptual, because insofar as you begin to recognize that you're falling short in some way, you're already, you begin to recognize that you're failing to implement something that you take yourself to know and that you are an ignorant knower, you thereby are edging out of a state of ignorant knowledge because it's part of this state to be unaware that there is this disconnect. And so <laughs> since Kierkegaard is interested in it from the other, coming from the other direction, I mean, I guess what it would be required to get out of it would be to find a teacher who could communicate with you indirectly rather than trying to find something new to know and to know in the same way that you know everything else. Okay, right. Suppose that I'm an extreme case of an ignorant knower. And I seem to be caught in this sort of trap that goes on forever because, you know, the more I'm told, practice what you preach, the more the slogan, practice what you preach, becomes yet another thing not to practice. And it seems like the only way to get out of that is to learn something that doesn't take the form of a slogan that can, like, not be practiced, but rather to learn something in a different way, to learn something we might say practically rather than merely theoretically. So that when you're confronted with somebody who has this problem, the thing to do is not to tell them a bunch more stuff, but rather to help them develop the ability, the capacity to practice what they preach. Right. When I was thinking about the term ignorant knowledge, I was thinking about it by contrast with something that you might call double ignorance, that it seems like comes up in some Socratic dialogues and, for instance, in the symposium, I believe it's in the symposium, and Socrates is talking about the way that the problem with ignorant people is, I mean, you could have someone who's ignorant and then who knows that they don't know, and then they might seek after what it is that they don't know, and so they would know that they were ignorant. But a lot of times the problem with ignorance is that it's not just that the person is ignorant, but they're in a kind of double ignorance where they don't know that they don't know. And so I was thinking about ignorant knowledge as being a state that is somewhat like that, in that the person is, is unaware of his own ignorance. But it's slightly different in the sense that, in just a, an ordinary case of double ignorance, the person might just be mistaken, or they might just you know not know, and then not know that they don't know. But in a case of ignorant knowledge, part of the point is that the person may be right about whatever it is that they know. It may be perfectly well true that it's important not to engage in idle chatter about virtue, but to put into practice what it is that you hear. And so it's not as if they're wrong. It's not as if they're mistaken. And so they're not in a state of double ignorance. They're sort of in a state of ignorant knowledge. So that was where that phrase comes from. But yeah, it seems like it is a marker of the most extreme form of the state that the person is self-satisfied with where they are, that they aren't aware that they have this problem. So the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, whom we've mentioned, drew a distinction between two kinds of communication, which you've mentioned, direct communication and indirect communication. And I guess we've been thinking of direct communication as something along the lines of there's something the person fails to realize, so then we tell them this thing, and now they realize it. And whereas indirect communication, we've been thinking of as more of like a practical ability, where they actually know how to 
do the thing they're trying to do. What would be an example of this? I mean, indirectly communicating something to someone. This is one thing that I take to be important about my view in particular of the the distinction between direct and indirect communication. These two forms of communication pick out different contents. And I think that the way that you described it is the right way of describing it. But it's not as if there's one thing that you could state and then it could be communicated either directly or indirectly. So like that Obama is the president. That's something that can be communicated directly. And it's not as if if I go through a series of winks and nods or if I tell you a little story that doesn't come right out and say it or something like that, that I could then communicate to you indirectly that Obama is the president, but that indirect communication would convey something else and namely a practical capability. And so I think that a lot of times when people talk about Kierkegaardian indirect communication, there is this underlying assumption that, well, it's sort of the same thing that's being communicated, like that Obama is the president and now it could be communicated directly if I come out and say it or indirectly if I'm kind of coy about it. And so in describing indirect communication this way, it's important that we pick it out by its imparting a capability rather than the content being the kind of content that can be directly communicated. But to get to your question, your question was an example of indirect communication actually being helpful. I think that the best way to approach this question might be to say a little bit about one of Kierkegaard's pseudonymous works, The Philosophical Fragments. One way to describe the concern of the book has to do with the significance of, or the distinction between a natural and a revealed religion. A revealed religion is supposed to be one in which you don't just know, or you can't arrive at the contents of this religious truth through an exercise of reason. And so the contents of the religion have to be revealed by God himself. And so this is the idea of a revealed religion as distinct from a kind of natural religion that can be arrived at through an exercise of reason. And it's this latter sort of religion that in this book Climacus associates with Socrates and his doctrine of recollection, that we just need to recollect a truth that's already within us rather than receiving a truth from somewhere else. This is a distinction that Kierkegaard's audience would take themselves to have a grip on, and they would also take themselves to know that Christianity is a revealed religion. And so the teacher is very important. The content of the religion has to be revealed by God himself. But now what Climacus does is he takes this distinction and he, through a thought experiment, he takes the Socratic position and he says, well, what if we had a position that was not the Socratic position? And so we're just going to negate the Socratic position and we're going to see what we arrive at. And so if people don't already have the truth within them, then they must be an untruth, then they require a teacher, and then the teacher must have historical significance. And as he goes along, he kind of starts inserting a lot of biblical language. And by the end of the book, it looks like he's developed Christianity itself through an exercise of reason by merely negating the Socratic position that he has begun with. And I think that by and large, Many commentators have taken it that the position presented in the, philosophic, in the philosophical fragments is Christianity, that Climacus has presented his readers with Christianity. But if you think about it, this has actually been an elaborate performance in 
ignorant knowledge that it's been a sort of, um, that Climacus has been in a kind of elaborate way putting on display the problem of ignorant knowledge by starting with this distinction that has to do with the way in which a revealed religion has to be revealed by God himself. And then through a kind of exercise, and we also know that Christianity is a revealed religion, and then through a kind of exercise of merely negating the Socratic position, actually himself, not a Christian, have, making no claims to special revelation, arriving at the doctrine of Christianity through an exercise of reason. And so I think that by the end of the book, if it's read properly, this should be really funny. And the book itself, one way to read the book would be as Climacus putting on display an exaggerated version of ignorant knowledge, actually bringing to his readers awareness that they didn't have a grip on the distinction between a revealed and a natural religion that they took themselves to have at the beginning of the book. And hopefully by the end of the book, kind of coming to laugh at themselves a little bit that they got so carried away in this thought experiment. Okay, so Kierkegaard writing as this imaginary character, you know, not publishing the book as Soren Kierkegaard, but rather publishing it under the name of Johannes Climacus, is illustrating for us the way an ignorant knower might try to demonstrate their understanding of the distinction between revealed and natural religion. So through the course of the book, Climacus, the pseudonymous author, accidentally gives a natural rendition of Christianity as opposed to a revealed sort of explication of Christianity, thereby demonstrating to the reader that in spite of his profession to understand the distinction between revealed and natural religion, in fact, does not. Kierkegaard's purpose in writing this then was so that the reader could sort of involve themselves in this process of it seeming like they understand this distinction, but in fact, they don't know how to put it into practice. And that experience of following along this fictional character doing that is what would enable the reader to overcome the problem. Yeah, and so I think that for the book to be read successfully, it would need to involve a couple of phases. But the first phase would be to find this line of argument that moves from merely negating the Socratic position to the discovery of a revealed religion, to find that line of argument compelling, and then to become aware of the way in which, well, there's something really weird going on here, because if I understood the distinction in the first place that we were working with, then there should be no way that through some sort of thought experiment like this, I could arrive at the content of a revealed religion. And so then to come to see the whole exercise, the whole thought experiment itself as kind of funny. And so to find it on the one hand first compelling and then to find it funny would be one way that a book like this could work. And so maybe something general to say would be, well, one way to try to communicate with someone who's in a state of ignorant knowledge would be to try to put on display a sort of exaggerated form of the problem that they have or trying to get them to engage in a form of the problem that's so exaggerated that they couldn't help but know it. That's one strategy. And that is, I take it, the strategy that Kierkegaard's employing in the philosophical fragments. But there could be a lot of other ways of trying to address someone in the state of ignorant knowledge and to impart a practical capacity. And I think that in other books, Kierkegaard actually employs different strategies. And I think that it's, as we talked about, it's such a difficult state to be in that, um, you know, finding out what works or what could actually help someone is a difficult question. And maybe there are a lot of ways of helping someone like this. So maybe to go back to the example of the person who professes to be polite, if one were to apply Kierkegaardian 
tactics to try and help this person. I guess the idea would be rather than telling them, look, you can't just go around talking about being polite. You have to actually be polite. That's not going to work because then the person's just going to add that to the repertoire of things to merely talk about but not actually do. Instead, one possible strategy out of many might be to kind of satirize and caricature the person to, to show them how it is they're really behaving towards other people. And that would be a way of conveying the lesson about how to put their theoretical knowledge into practice. That would be an alternative to just sort of giving them more theoretical knowledge. Right. Yeah. And if it actually worked, I mean, of course, you could imagine that failing too. But if it were to work, it would be a case of indirect communication, because what would be imparted would be a kind of practical understanding of their own failure there. So would you say that this is a common problem, that people often fall into this pattern of not being able to practice what they preach um, and not being aware that they are failing to practice what they preach? Let's see. I think that it is a significant problem, and I think of it as falling into the category of ocratic action and maybe amoralism or alongside these sorts of topics of people. These are people who seem to have the ocratic and the amoralist who seem to have some grasp on what it is that they ought to be doing and are failing to do it. And I think that the ignorant knower deserves attention alongside these other sorts of failures to implement what it is that you take it that you ought to be doing. Philosophically, I think that in terms of being a practical problem, Kierkegaard at least thought that it was becoming more and more so, I think, that it was the problem of his age. And this had to do with the way that what he called objective knowledge was being emphasized more and more. And so he thinks that the whole discipline of ethics as a practical endeavor was in fact threatened by the idea that knowledge is just becoming objective. And so people are no longer interested in the practical aspects of ethics and now are becoming just more and more concerned with, with emphasizing objective knowledge, knowledge that can be communicated directly. I have found, I think, that this is a really rich topic and that once you begin to recognize this problem, you can see it coming up in all sorts of ways and you can see many examples of it. I do think that on the one hand, it should be recognized philosophically as a case of practical failure that hasn't been given very much attention, that hasn't been recognized in its own right, and that practically it should have significance for people that this is a real problem that people face. The Ocratic is an ancient Greek word for somebody who is weak-willed, who fails to do something that they know is the right thing to do. And the amoralist is a person who knows what the right thing to do is, but just has no interest in doing it. These cases have been of interest to philosophers because they're sort of extreme cases to do with the relation between knowing what the right thing to do is and being able to do it. And you want to suggest that the ignorant knower be placed alongside these test cases so that they can be used as uh, tools for understanding the relation between knowing how to be good, how to do the right thing, and actually doing it. Jennifer Lockhart, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. <laughs>